Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, this is Emma Whitfield, account manager at the Webby Awards. Before we get started, I just wanted to let you know that the call for entries for the 23rd annual Webby Awards is open. This year, we've added an entire suite of voice honors from technical achievement to productivity. And we have new categories across podcasts, games, branded entertainment, social content series and campaigns, and more. We're so excited to honor your work. So head on over to webbyawards.com to get in on early entry pricing before the deadline on Friday, October 26th. From the Webby Awards, I'm David Michelle Davies. This is the Webby Podcast. Wow, you guys love websites. Long articles, but short speech. Sold stock, pre-Verizon. Hey there, and welcome back to the Webby Podcast. My next guest is the sensei of online journalism and a good friend of the Webby's, Roy Seacoff. Aside from being one of the funniest people I know, Roy is the founding editor of the Huffington Post and also created HuffPost Live. Today, HuffPost is a household name, but when Roy started, it was the essence of disruption. As founding editor, Roy's work completely changed how we consume online media, giving anyone, anywhere the platform to be a community journalist and blogger. He eventually introduced HuffPost Live's short news clips that were essentially the precursor to the viral news videos that are now everywhere on the internet. Roy recently took a little break from journalism to write his first book titled Lack Self-Control. It's a collection of very funny stories from his life and work. We talked a lot about the stories in his book, including one about the time he collected Oprah Winfrey's tears on a Kleenex to give as a memento to his sister-in-law. Yes, I just said that. We also talked about the non-traditional and once again disruptive way Roy published this collection of stories, a path inspired by his son, Zach. The real question for me, David, was whether I was going to have the discipline that I had developed over the years at HuffPost without the deadlines. Because hmm. during the HuffPost years, I wrote and I edited everywhere or anywhere. You know, it was crazy. It was a 15-hour-a-day job, and sometimes it'd be on planes, and sometimes it'd be in airports, and I learned I could write anywhere. Mm -hmm. Before, I used to have to have everything perfect. Right. The lights, the sound. Wait, is that a bird chirping? I can't, I, I can't create, you know? And so I was kind of relaxed about that part of it, but the question was, A, what was my voice going to be, and B, did I have that discipline? Yeah. You and know? so, so you, you got the book done. Yeah. And then... I turned out I did have the discipline. Okay. And I wrote yeah, every day. Yeah. I wrote every day for eight to 10 hours, wow. six days a week. That's impressive. Really, that was pouring out of me. It was really more a, a question of me trying to keep up with my fevered brain. Mm. You know? So I had the book. Right. Uh, or what I assumed would be a book. And I ordered it you know, around, because they're, they're discrete stories. 
It's not a memoir. It's not this happened, then this happened, then this happened. Right. You know, they, it jumps around. I did that on purpose. Some when I'm a kid, some when I'm at HuffPo, some when I'm a teenager, some when I'm in my 20s, you know. So I gave it to two friends uh, who I trusted, who were writers, and I said, look, you're not doing me any favors by bullshitting me, right? If this sucks, tell me it sucks, and I'll right. go do something else, yeah. uh, you know. So I gave them the book, and they both read it and wrote back, uh, we love this. It was really funny. Yeah, great. <laughs> you know, laughed out loud. I was like, oh, okay. So I, I didn't trust it. So I gave it to two more friends. Same response. So I thought maybe I have something here. So I don't have an agent, but I know some agents. So I yeah. called up an agent and said, hey, you got somebody who's a book guy who could take a look at this? I thought that would take a while. He wrote me back in 10 minutes, CCing the, the uh, agent. He wrote me back in 10 minutes going, oh, it sounds like a very funny book. Can you send it to me tonight? And I was like, I guess. I didn't even know if it was in the right form. Right. You know, I hadn't studied any of that kind of thing. I just kind of wrote it in Google Docs. Right. So I sent it off to him, and he read it, and he went, I really like this. This is really funny. Let's try to sell it. This is like every writer's dream, by the way. Oh, it was insane. Yeah. It was insane. Let's, I was, let's just acknowledge that. Oh, no, no, yeah, no. Yeah. It, but the dream turned into, I won't say a nightmare, uh-huh. but it, it, it took a darker turn. Okay. Because what happened was I was introduced to the world of modern publishing. Right. And what happened was I got three quick responses. Very funny. Roy's a really good writer, like his voice. So how's he going to sell it? How many followers does he have on social media? Uh-huh. And I was like, how am I going to sell it? That's what you do. How are you going to sell it? Yeah. You know? Uh, and of course, I had built uh, a brand with a lot of followers on social media, but not under the Roy Seekoff name. Yeah. Right? So HuffPost, but uh, I couldn't use that platform anymore. Right. So I thought, oh, man. And then my, my son, who's 22 years old, and he's a music producer, and he sort of said very fateful words. He said, Dad, uh, your thinking is very 20th century. Uh, why don't you get into the 21st century, cut out the middleman, and just publish it yourself? And so I thought, hmm, uh, does that happen? I mean, I knew that it happened to the music industry, but is that yeah. what was happening in the publishing industry? Yeah. So I spent about three weeks deep diving into the brave new world of independent publishing. And it was very exciting. And I thought, well, you know, the HuffPost guy, we sort of disintermediated journalism. Well, should I just go the old route? Or should I try to go guerrilla and disintermediate the publishing uh, yeah. approach, right? Yeah. Was there any hesitation that I asked? Because I just think of, like, if I wrote a book and people said it was funny, there's a lot of, I don't want to say ego, but there's a lot of, like, um, excitement that comes from, like, some big New York publishers saying that, like, we're going to publish your book, right? I mean, that's, like, a that's an exciting thing. Yes. And so to sort of say, thank you so much, but I'm going to go this other independent, non-proven route that doesn't give me nearly a, as much, like you know, initial cred in the publishing industry. Correct. That's, I don't know, I could see being like, eh, I don't know about that. And I'm old enough to think, uh, to have the world where the stink of self-publishing was sort of right. like, that's another you know, thing. yeah, it's this yeah. sort of, oh, you know, ego tripping, you yeah. do it yourself, and it's because you can't get published. Right. You know, what do they used to call it? The vanity press. Right, that's how it was back in the day. Yeah, yeah. so that's what I, you know, but then the more I read, I went, no, 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 no. 70% of all books are being sold on Amazon. Mm. I, as an independent author, have the exact same access to Amazon's platform as Random House or Penguin, Simon & Schuster, anybody. Yeah. The only question is, how do you break through the din? But the actual publishing, very simple. Uh, and that's what I did. I started writing down what I would need to do. Mm-hmm. And I realized, wow, this is not hard. 
then I realized this is really fucking hard to do right. <laughs> right, right. Do you know what I mean? Right, like you could you could publish the book, you could have it up there Tomorrow. selling it, but it would be number, number 1,437,000 yeah. on the essay list. Nobody would ever find out Correct. about it, all that stuff. Correct. Yeah. But they were asking me, hey, you've got a great Rolodex. How are you going to sell it? Well, if I'm going to sell it, right. so for instance, if I went with the standard publishing deal, I wasn't, I'm not Amy Schumer. I'm not Lena Dunham. They weren't going to give me a $3 million advance. Yeah. So they gave me some Vashtunkana advance, right? And then I'd have to sell it myself. And the royalty rate, what do you think the royalty rate is? It's probably a buck a buck or something like that. 90% them, yeah. 10% me, yeah. after they recoup the costs. Right, of publishing. Of publishing and printing, and, printing and, and, yeah. and everything else that they tack on, you know, PR and all that kind of stuff, right? So the publishing, what do you think the rate is on Amazon? It's going to be like half at least, if not 80%, I would say. 70, 30, you. Right, yeah. Not 90, 10, them. 70, 30, you within a certain price range. Yeah. You know? So I thought, okay, well, why wouldn't I want to keep 60% more if I'm going to do the selling anyway? Right. Now, listen, if they were going to go great guns and, you know, you're Jim Comey and they're going to blast it everywhere, okay, that that makes sense. But the more I thought about it, I thought, okay, this seems exciting. This seems guerrilla. This seems like the attitude I want to bring to it. Yeah. And so... Then I realized, okay, I need some help because my list of things I needed to do to do it right it's getting longer and longer had gotten very long. Yeah. And then the question became like, you know, I've pro- like you, I've I've managed projects. I had twenty five million dollar project, you know, launching Huppos Live. I know how to do that kind of level of project management, but it's like, is that the best use of my time? So I want I did. You could do it completely DIY, and you could do it where you give it to a company and they do everything. I didn't want either of those. I kind of wanted something in the mid-ground where I was very involved, but I had people to sort of help skip through. Mm-hmm. So I found a publishing Sherpa and this great company called Girl Friday Productions, and uh, they helped sort of cut through the din. So for instance, I needed a copy editor. They said, we know the perfect copy editor. I needed a cover designer. We've got the perfect cover designer. So they took me through all those steps, the stations on the publishing cross, if you will. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't be happier with how, how that turned out. And what about, I mean, so what about, because, you know, these days, the world of having results on Amazon is like everything, right? Whether you're a you're an independent book publisher or you're selling like dryer balls. Everything. Like, everything. You know, everything's available and everybody's trying to sell it. But unless yeah. you're somehow in any listing, you're essentially, you're not going to make a dime. You're not going so to break through the like, Did you have to get into that whole muddy world of like, how do I elevate to the top of Amazon? Yeah. You know, and try to study that and figure it out. And like everybody else is trying to figure it out. You can't game the system because they're still two Always steps ahead, ahead of you. They're, you know, they're very careful about who's buying the book. There can only be so many bought. Uh, you know, reviews, who's giving their, you know, they're, they're very on top of all that. So yeah. you can't game the system, right. but you could do it right. Mm-hmm. You know, because there's a lot of people who just put it up and go, I don't know. So I, I've hired teams. Uh, I, you know, I've got... a digital guy, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and we're, we're doing all kinds of digital ads and we're buying Facebook ads and we're targeting them. Who's the psychograph of the Roy Seacoff reader? You know, I mean, people who like uh, Larry David, people who like David Sedaris, people who like Chelsea Hanley, you know, yeah. all those kind of things. And we're uh-huh. targeting those people. Um, and then I also uh, hired a standard, you know, old school kind of, they're not old school in their approach, but, a, you know, a classic PR firm mm-hmm. that has done uh, a lot of book PR, uh, Smith. Uh, Smith PR. And um, so I've been doing sort of new school and old school and uh, just fighting the fight. You know, it's, it's, it, it, I'm learning every day. I learned a lot during the publishing process and I'm learning a lot in the selling process and the marketing process. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, it's a marathon. 
it's not a sprint. Right. So I'm from Hollywood. I mean, I, I worked in Hollywood. And, you know, if you're doing Hollywood, if your film doesn't open on Friday, day, right? yeah. you're screwed, man. Yeah. Right? It goes bye-bye. You lose right. all your... The- it's a really high-pressure game. I'm learning that book publishing is a marathon. Interesting. You know, you're, 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 you're hawking it. You're doing wonderful podcasts like this. You know, you're hoping that the people listening go, oh, that sounds interesting. Maybe I'll check that book out. And so on and so on and so on. You do readings. Yeah. You know, you go to a bookstore and 50 people show up and hopefully they all want you to sign the book so they buy it. So that's 50. And, da, 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 you know. and then you get into the algorithm of Amazon and Amazon starts going, hey, you know, maybe we should, if they're looking for David Sedaris, we should also say you may also like, mm-hmm. you know, if, if you stay in that sweet spot of books that are being sold consistently. Right. They don't want one big spike and then go down. You know, you got to sort of stay consistent and, and stay in the top, you know, uh, 20, 30. Yeah. So I want to talk to you about some of the stories in the book. Yeah. But before I move on, give me the, like, what do you, I mean, looking back now, you're happy, self, it's clear you're, like, happy that you did it this way. Oh, yeah. What's the takeaway? Like, this is the future of publishing, book publishers are gone, they're only going to exist for Chelsea Handlers of the world. Like, what, what do you think, having gone through this whole experience? Well, I, I, what I think is, it's really hard to make a living as an author, yeah. you know? I mean, even even if you're a big author, you know, I'm looking at the numbers, You've it's, it's not an easy thing. I think there was a thing in the newspaper last week that 80% of Americans have not read a single book this year. Wow. Yikes. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's, so yeah. it, it's, it, I think that you have to be multidimensional. And that's one of the things my son said to me. He said, Dad, you know, you, know, you don't want to think of yourself as a brand. I hate people, you know, and my brand. I hear all these athletes, and it's my brand. Uh, but you are, in a way, selling yourself and your brand. And your brand, for me, would be hopefully somebody who says and writes smart, funny things. And then I hopefully sometimes will do that in a book, and maybe sometimes I'll do it in a script. And sometimes I'll do it live, and sometimes I'll you know yeah. do a, a speaking thing. So you got to bring the whole uh, game together. Interesting. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about some of the stories in the book, and I thought I'd, we could start off just talking about you know like where you're from, because at this point people maybe don't know that. Yeah. I, I mean, I know you're from Miami. Yes, Miami, Florida. Miami. Yeah. Yes, uh, Coral Gables, Florida, the city, beautiful. And you have some stories in the book about your dad and about growing up in Miami. Yes, the, right? my, my my dad is uh, was you know the, the subtitle of the book is. True stories I waited until my parents died to tell. So that sort of is, you know, gives you a, a feel for the kind of stories there are. When I, David, when I set out to write the book, I wanted to give myself just two missions because I didn't want to put too much pressure. Mission one, be as funny as I'm capable of being in these stories and be as honest as I'm capable of being. Yeah. And that's really what I wanted to do is sort of explore these, whatever stories were popping into my head. Again, I didn't have an outline. I'd wake up and, I mean, I had some that I'd written down notes on, but I had 50 to choose from. And I'd wake up and I'd go, how much story do I want to tell today? And whichever one sort of sparked me, then yeah. I would start writing that. And um, a bunch of them are from my childhood. Um, my dad was the most influential figure in my life. He was a very big personality. He owned a college bookstore oh, wow. uh, for 60 years. Um, Book Horizons Bookstore, it's the... It is the mouth of the Nile from which anything Seacoff flows. Mm-hmm. You know, anything that me or my brothers have, it's because of Book Horizons. Uh, my what dad college was, was it for? University, University of Miami. Miami. Oh, yeah. yeah, my dad was a really good businessman. He's from New York, you know, New York Jews, lefty uh-huh. Jews. And uh, he went to St. John's, one of the few Jews who went to St. John's. Yeah. But while he did that, he also worked at a bookstore, and he yeah. learned the book business. And then without the long story, he went down to Miami one time, 
and looked around and thought, this is a nice place, uh, you know, uh, and they don't have much of a bookstore. And my dad was called Big A, his name was Arthur, and he had a big personality. I think in, in another, if he wasn't a child of the Depression, he, I think, would have wanted to be a writer or he would have wanted to be a, a performer. Mm-hmm. He had kind of like a Jackie Gleason, Zero Mostel, you know, kind of kind of vibe I mean, to him. College bookstore is sort of a place where like one holds court, right? If you're the, yes. I mean, a lot of college bookstore owners are yeah. yeah. the... Well, my dad was a legend. He was there yeah. for so long. Everybody else is coming in and out, right? College, the students come and go. They all remembered him. He didn't remember them, you know? So, yeah. and so, um, yeah. So my dad was this very funny guy, big personality and very funny. And uh, he loved Lenny Bruce, and you know, sort of. That's where I started to get those comedy chops right. uh, that that I had. Also, I think the, the the place that it all happened was the dinner table, because my parents uh, we ate together. We didn't watch Wheel of Fortune, you know. And they were they were smart, and they were engaged, and they cared about the world, and they cared about issues and politics. And I grew up in the '60s, so obviously a very uh, ripe time for all of that. And you had to have game. At the Seacoff dinner yeah. table. Because I have an older brother who's really, really smart, uh, far smarter than me. Uh, smartest person I've ever, I, I know is my older brother, Jed. And, uh, you know, I sat there and I was like, God, I, I want to be a part of this. So I had to start having thoughts, you know. And I think part of it was um, having ideas and part of it was being able to, you know, spritz. Get yeah. in there, you know, yeah. tumble a little bit. So what was the, what was like the revered profession? You know, like if you were going to please your father or your parents, what was the thing that was going to do it? Like, they weren't those kind of parents. Yeah. Listen, on the dedication of the book, I dedicate the book to my parents. And what I say is, you know, to my parents who supported me long after it made sense to do so. Right. They were incredibly supportive in every way, yeah. emotionally, financially, you know, they, they were ridiculously supportive. I, I have had a very zigzag life and a very zigzag career. It wasn't, you know, straight to the top, Alice, you yeah. know. Um, but they were always very supportive. So I don't know. I think in some ways I, I, I felt like I was living my dad's dream in some ways. Mm. Uh, never spoken, but I later found papers when he died. Uh, he was a writer when he was in the Army. He was in World War II. And he had written for the local, you know, whatever paper that they did on the base. And he wrote funny sketches and things like that. So I think in some ways, you know, yeah. uh, he... I, I know I, they never said it directly, but a lot of my friends said, oh, you know, because there was a time there where I did the talking head thing, you know, MSNBC and CNN and Fox and everything. And apparently my dad, when he found out that I was going to be on, he would make the call, call the rounds, leave, leave messages, you know, Roy will be on Dan Abrams tonight. Don't miss it. You know, so he, he was very proud of that kind of stuff. People uh, know about uh, the Huffington Post itself. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you have a bunch of stories about Huffington Post in there, too. And one thing I saw that I really loved, um, which is that you have this thing that you say, which is that you are celebrity adjacent, which I just thought was such a great, a great way of framing that. And yes. Because actually, and if you look at if people who look, get your book and look at your book, you have like incredible quotes from, you know, blurbs from people. Yeah. You have Larry David, the best, I mean, not that the other ones aren't great, but Larry David says... Uh, I've read worse. I've read worse. And it's like, how'd this guy get Larry David? But, but in addition to founding the Huffington Post and working with Ariana and that small team that eventually became bigger, you all, and editing and all that stuff and writing, you also spent like a ton of time getting celebrities to send you stories, right? Yes. And like... Talk about regular people on deadline. I can only imagine celebrities on deadline. Well, one of the great things about HuffPost and Ariana's original vision for it was like, there's all these interesting people who, at the time, 2005, 
didn't have an online presence. So flashback day for a second there. No Twitter, no Facebook, no Instagram, none of this stuff, right? So the idea of blogging was very exciting and very new, but that took a lot of work. If you were going to be a real blogger like Josh Marshall or Andrew Sullivan, you know, you had to blog a, blog a couple times a day. Yeah. It needed to stay fresh. Well, no celebrity's going to blog a couple of times a day. They got more important things to do. So we had this idea to have this group blog, this collective hive. And if Larry David didn't want to blog uh, for three weeks... It's okay. Okay. There yeah. was no deadline. There was no expectation. When you sent it in, great. And the weird thing, and maybe we need somebody smarter than me, uh, as far as statistics... I think you did all right. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, for instance, when you go to a restaurant... How much fish do they bring in? You don't want to have too much because then you got all the extra fish. You don't want to have too, too little. You got 86 on the fish, right? Same thing with the blog. We never had so much that we couldn't put it up, and we never had so little that we didn't have anything new. Mm. Somehow it always kind of worked out, yeah. even in the early days before the blog became right. as, as massive. You know? so, so, so that was one of the things. That was one of the gifts. And the other thing was we realized that the celebrities were really just the sprinkle. Uh, you know, they were the sizzle, not the steak. Right. That was really a moment. I remember in 2005, July, uh-huh. uh, I get a call from Kenny Lair, our uh, you know, a co-founder, and he said, I noticed that this blog post about healthcare written by nobody I've ever heard of is going through the roof. I said, yeah. He said, hmm, if people care about the issue more than they care about the name of the writer we might really have something. Interesting. You know? And that's what it turned out to be. Yeah. So, you know, it really became people were passionate about the issues, and they wanted to read about healthcare, and they wanted to read about the war, and they wanted to read about, you know, all these key issues. And then the, sp- the sparkle mm. was when we had... Oprah was the yeah, sparkle. Yeah, Larry David and Nora Ephron, and it was fun, and it was fantastic, and it was great to have them on the front page, but that wasn't really... A lot of people go, oh, Ariana brought all these celebrities in, and that changed the internet. Yeah. Not, not, not the case. Yeah. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust proof stainless steel hardware, weather ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. One of my favorite stories from the book is you have this great story, and it goes back to your principle at the beginning, which is you want to tell the stories as truthfully as you could, and I would imagine this is maybe the, one of the more difficult ones to tell as truthfully as you could. Uh, but the story is about Oprah Winfrey, and essentially you're with, I think, you know, you guys are doing some sort of biz dev deal with her or talking to her. And- my sister-in-law loves Oprah. And when my wife found out that we were going to be doing this deal, you know, with Oprah's company, Harpo, and I was going to Chicago to meet with her team, she said, hey, can you bring back some swag, you know, a hat or something? And, you know. You deal with celebrities at the Webbies. You don't want to ask, like, hey, can you sign my hat? Yeah, you know, yeah. it's, became, it's become now they, everybody wants to do a selfie or something sure. like that. But you don't want to, like, say, oh, gee, Oprah, can I have, you know. So anyway, I thought, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll do my best. Because I love my wife. 
you know, she's fantastic, nicest person I've ever met, sweet person, never done a thing wrong to anybody in her life. Hey, you know, even though this was a favor for her sister, yeah. It's a favor for her. It was a favor for her, yeah. So I go there and blah, blah, blah. Long story short is it's a very emotional thing. Oprah does a show. She does something where she's doing something on the internet, much like what we were building with HuffPost Live, using Facebook and, you know, people uh, coming in via Skype. And she did this really emotional show. And everybody was crying, including me. And as we were walking out, I was passing her desk, and I saw these wadded up tissues right where Oprah had been sitting. And I suddenly thought, who needs a hat? Right. Forget I'm going to bring... Oprah selfie. I got the Oprah tears. I'm bringing Oprah's tears, yeah, right? Yeah. So right when I was about to filch them, a PA came up and said, uh, uh, Roy, uh, Oprah will see you now. I, I couldn't steal the tears. Right, right. And I went off, and Oprah and I had this great interaction. She was very, very warm and... Uh, she liked something I'd said about uh, the revolution will not be televised, but it will be Facebooked and tweeted and you yeah. know and 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 blogged, and uh, and then I got back to the room and I realized oh I didn't get any swag. You didn't get, you didn't get the and the light bulb the, didn't happen until I started cleaning out my pockets and I threw away my tissues because I had been crying right and I had a couple of tissues in my pocket and then I kind of went you know. <laughs> These that was the red man on the other exactly, side of the and he was right? going. Yeah. You know, your snot yeah. can become Oprah's tears, <laughs> and who's going to know? And I thought that's a good idea, young man. <laughs> and so I I packed up the tears, and I and I went home, and uh, my wife uh, said, "How did it go? Great." And I said, "I've got a great present for your sister." And I brought out the baggie, and she said, "Use Kleenexes." These are not used Kleenexes. These are the physical manifestation of Oprah Winfrey, the queen of all television. Yeah. She's like, oh. And then she looked at him and said, how come there's no mascara on them? And I had to think fast because, you know, once you lie, you keep going. You, you gotta, go you deeper, man. In, yeah. And I realized this is how it happens. I said, well, I don't know. Maybe she has some fancy permanent mascara or something, but these are Oprah's tears. And then, like, oh, okay. She kind of warmed to it. And I knew I was. Did you think about just letting her in on the, on the lie and saying, she wouldn't have given it to her sister, though, if you had done that? No, she's too right. nice a person. Right. She's, yeah, yeah. If, if you know my wife, there yeah. is not a lie that she's going to tell. You know, yeah. uh, I, on the other hand. <laughs> Clearly, have no problem with it. So basically, we went really far with this. We ended up having it mounted at a trophy pace and put in this lucite cube with a plaque saying Oprah's Tears in the day that they were secreted and collected. And uh, it was a big hit. I bet. It was a big hit. And my sister-in-law had it on a a place of prestige in her house, and people would come over and just ooh and ah, Oprah's tears, Oprah's tears. It's amazing um, Oprah doesn't sell her tears, i got to be honest. Right? Yeah. And and, and then, you know, I thought to myself, damn, that's a funny story. Yeah. You know, and here's the thing about humor. Uh, You know, most of these stories, I'm the schmuck, right? I mean, I'm the brunt of the joke. It's not like I'm getting over and I'm pulling people... You know, I, to me, that's comedy. Comedy is you think something's great is going to happen, and it doesn't work out quite like you thought it was going to, right? That's a classic, especially a, a Jewish kind of, uh, yeah. you know, kind of comedy, you know? Oy, and all this. So, um, Wouldn't you know? Yeah. So I thought, you know what? I'm the schmuck in this story. I'm the liar. I'm the bad person. Let me just see uh, how that story works out. So I wrote the story, and I thought, that's really funny. 
I should probably tell my wife. It's a good story. I mean, also, you probably weren't able to tell the story that many times before that. Well, at least with the best part, which is right. they weren't really the tears. But I didn't tell anybody. Right? I yeah. told them about, yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, the, the cover story. Right. And then finally, I waited and waited. In the long, you know, it's like any lie. The longer you, you know, uh, wait, it's harder to come clean. It's like, oh, you waited a year to come clean? You waited five years? So I finally told my wife, and she was like, oh, brother. No. So was she actually mad at you or just sort of like, My okay, wife is she, so she, sweet, she was not she mad just at me. She chalked it up to... She was like, but you got to tell Debbie. Before the book comes you out. You know, and then I waited and waited and finally, like <laughs> two weeks before the book came out. How'd that go? Um, you know, at first it went well, uh, but then uh, I realized that she was less happy about it than I was uh, letting on. But here's why. Here was the interesting thing. You know, you think one thing... But the problem, really, at the end of the day, wasn't that I lied to her. She just felt that the way I described our relationship... Oh, in the book. ...wasn't the same as what she felt. And, you know, I had to explain, it's comedy. You know, you, you shade things a little bit. And once I, you know, explained how much I really, really, my really... Ama- my amazing <laughs> sister-in-law, Debbie, would have... Maybe that would have worked out better for you. That would have worked out better than, I like her good enough... You know, which I thought was funnier. You know, you put it in a position where... But so anyway, I love Debbie. She's a fantastic person. (laughs) Debbie's not listening to this. Uh, You you never know. The internet's a screwed up thing, man. You know, so... uh, But it is funny because, you know, I changed a lot of the names in the book uh, for legal reasons and just because, you know, it's not worth it. Right. It's not worth it because you want to be as honest as possible, but... What did you call Ariana in the book? Uh, Well, see, there's certain things you can't change, right? It's like my brother Jed, I mean... My brother yeah. Fred, yeah. you know, you, you, my brother, my wife, it, it, there's certain things you can't change. Yeah. I was surprised by what upset people. And there were some people upset by some of the stuff that I wrote, oh. you know, but I was surprised by what thing upset yeah. what person. Right, right. But this is what you have to do. When you write these kind of things, this is what the subtitle of the book, you have to pretend. Wait till they die. Or pretend that the people who are still alive are at least dead to you for the moment that you're writing it. Then you can worry about it afterwards. Yes, yeah, so you can. You and David Sedaris can have a whole little conference. Correct, and half of his family, half his family doesn't family. talk to him. Yeah. yeah. Let's switch gears for a second. You were just saying that the internet's like a screwy place, and I know you've been. You know, I don't know if it's been like a year and a half yeah. or two years, yeah. whatever. You've been out of the slightly out of the game, right? But uh, you did found the Huffington Post, yeah. co-founded it, yeah. and. You know, your partner in crime, Ariane Huffington, did come to the Webbies one time and say with her five-word speech, I didn't kill newspapers, okay. That was met with a lot of people who thought probably, no, you did, you know. But not really. That's the thing. <laughs> well, yeah. maybe toss Craigslist, Craigslist in there with, with it, and then, you know, maybe let's like a little yeah. one-two punch. Yeah, well, no. Let's, let's have a one, two, three, or four punch. Fair enough. And let's say one punch, a big punch, is Craigslist, yeah. getting rid of, you know, uh, classified ads. And the second one is, let's be honest, avaricious corporations coming in, buying newspapers that were making money, and then using them, selling off all the things, and sort of gutting them, yeah. and turning them into, you know, buy, buying them with massive debt, yeah. and then trying to pay, you know. Yeah. Well, it, 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 was, it wasn't uh, just the internet, and it wasn't just helping to post. I mean, I was, I was going to also add um, 
then I didn't think it was entirely a bad thing because there's a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of things out there that were old and that needed to be reinvented and had a lot of chances to be reinvented and didn't get reinvented. Well, that, and that, so that's the thing. I a mean, a bunch it, of other people came and took all the new stuff that was there and they they used it and they made a much better experience for like billions of people all over the world. So I don't think it's I don't no it's no not, no not of course bad, you know? no 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 it's just the many many years of this sort of myth and you know you got to understand that all the factors that are that are playing into it. but but you're right. Listen, what do you do? With the blacksmith. Yeah. Sorry, bro. Yeah. You're going to have to figure out something else or another way to make it work, you know? And so I think, by the way, we, and I I say this with uh, no small amount of, uh, you know, humility and pride, I I think we made so many of the legacy brands better. Yeah. I mean, you know, the New York Times, very, very, very digital forward now. And I think a lot of that was because of what, you know, what we did and what people were able to see that we did and stuff that we did that was radical became like everybody does it now. We were talking here about some of the stuff. One question everybody's sort of asking, because I think one thing that, you know, Huffington Post among many, but I think was a leader at was sort of this, the speeding up the news cycle or that there was, it wasn't just that like news broke at, you know, when the newspaper came out at 9am or what, 6am, whatever it was, that it came out then and news broke at noon and it broke at three. And now of course it breaks, breaks at one fifty one and one fifty three, one fifty five. Right. But that there was, and I think any real reader of Huffington Post would have eventually sort of figured out there was like a cadence to it, right? That like there was sort of the, the articles that were going to go up on Monday morning were kind of up on the site late Sunday night and they were getting kind of tweaked and like, then they're up on Monday morning. And then there was like wave two that kind of came, you know, that was like a whole new thing. And it was exciting. All of a sudden people had like a lot more to read and find out about and stuff. But now it's like, like I said, now it's like uh, this news is breaking every minute or two minutes. I think the analogy like, would be if you're sipping from a hose. So like, you know, before HuffPost, it was sort of trickling out and you'd be happy to get a little on your tongue and, you know, just stay, you know, lose the parchness thing yeah, a little bit. And then, so the, then the hose started coming and you could sip from it and you could come multiple times and sip from Well, now... <laughs> it, it's a geyser, yeah. and it's just going down your throat at a at a choking level. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, so what do you think is? What do you think about that? Like, I, what do you think? What's lost? What's gained? Uh, I, I I think much is lost. Um, I think we're in a very confused. I'm actually so happy that I'm not in the midst of it right now. Yeah. Uh, you know, because everybody said to me during the 2016 campaign, "Do you miss it? I mean, do you miss going on can't TV and?" T- I'm like, are you kidding me? This is so screwed up, yeah. and this is so, you know, comedic. It's tragic, yeah. but comedic. I wouldn't know what to say. I mean, I look at, and by the way, I think we're at this moment with unbelievable, this is the greatest moment of satire maybe in the history uh, of comedy, yeah. right? I mean, Samantha B and John Oliver and Stephen Colbert, right? Really, really great stuff. And at the same moment, I think it's the least effective moment. Right, because it's like the whole thing is just satire itself. What can you possibly? Every, what could you possibly come up with that's any better than reality? And we've been so divided that I think it's all preaching to the choir. Mm. You know, I, I don't think there's anybody's like. I think Jonathan Swift, you know, when he wrote his modest proposal, that really had an impact. Yeah, and people went, "Oh, my eyes have been opened. The scales have fallen from my eyes." Yeah, I, I don't think there's a single person. Uh, you know, uh, I, I think, and now we've gotten to the point. And I, I by the way. This is real-time commentary. I don't know what I think yet. Yeah. You know, but we're in this moment now where everybody's after scalps. You know? And so, yeah, when the schmuck goes on Sasha Baron Cohen's show and does outrageous things, he should be forced to resign. Yeah. You know? But now we're going after people. 
right? So uh, Sarah Silberman, Patton Oswald, all these right wingers are now targeting them. Right. And going back through the what joke did they tell ten years ago? Like, I don't know. I've had to rethink. Uh, you know, James Gunn. I guess his name's James. Mm-hmm. James Gunn, who was the director of Guardians of the Galaxy, right, and right, was just yeah. fired uh, for ten-year-old tweets. Now you read the tweets; they're insanely outrageous. Yeah, you know, and you read and you go, "I'm offended." And by the way, I'm never offended. You know, I just I, I get it. I get what humor is, and I get the darker the better in some ways. But you read it and you go, "Okay, I, I could see why that a company like Disney might not want to be connected to that kind of thing." But they were ten years old. Can people change? Can they grow? Can they develop? But they got his scalp. Yeah. Right. And so now everybody's sort of out for blood, and. I don't think that's good. Yeah. You know, it's certainly not good for the for the public discourse. It's not good for humor. I mean, if you're checking yourself saying every time, is this joke going to be misinterpreted and put into a tweet and there's going to be, you know, everybody trying to, you know, yeah. lose me. But at the same time, you don't want people saying uh, horrible things. Uh, I, so, uh, you know, you got to try to figure out the answer. I've, I've never liked the idea of, you know, Bill Maher, getting fired from ABC for making a comment on uh, Politically Incorrect about 9-11. But at the same time, you go, man, Laura Ingram says the most horrible thing about the Parkland kids. Shouldn't we say we're going to boycott? Yeah. I don't know. I go back and forth, you know? So in the macro view, um, I'm nervous. Uh, I think everybody is nervous trying to figure out how do we exist in a world in a media landscape where whatever, what's the number latest, 70%, 75% of every digital dollar is consumed by Google or Facebook, Yeah. right? And so how do you have an independent brand if you're just trying to get the scraps? Nobody's a must-buy anymore other than those two people. Right. So it becomes, those two brands, it becomes very hard. And so how is it going to work, you know? Are we all going to need Jeff Bezos to own... Right, our you know, our publications. To, yeah. yeah, or are we going to go ProPublica where, you know, people are getting a, a grant? Um, you know, and it's scary. I mean, we saw, you know, New York Daily News, uh, 50% of the people were fired. Uh, very little local reporting now. Yeah. Uh, more and more of that's being consumed. Sinclair is now... What's, what do you think's filling the... I mean... Well, unfortunately... Something has to be filling it, right? I mean, because it's... it's, No, I think we're getting into the thing where out of sight, out of mind. I mean, if somebody doesn't shake it in front of your face and go, hey, here's a corrupt guy on the school board who's taking money to do this, like, I wouldn't be thinking about that. I don't wake up in the morning and go, like, some guy in L.A. just got fired for, you know some corrupt thing that he was doing, you know? And I don't wake up and go, hey, I wonder if the school board is... But it's our tax dollars and you care, but you need somebody there who really understands the minutia of it. Somebody who that's what they live and breathe. And, you know, there's some bloggers doing that, but... Not enough of them. It's not enough. And, you know, and it's very, very hard. And so I think people are getting into the state of mind where they're paying for content. I mean, that's happening more and more. Um, you know, the New York Times is doing incredibly well right now. And the Washington Post is actually not living off of Jeff Bezos's, uh goodwill. They're making money, too, you know. So, and we're going to see there's a new owner of the L.A. Times, and hopefully he's going to invest in it. You know, we saw what happened when Tronk had the L.A. Times. Uh, they came in and they did that thing. They bought it with massive debt. 
and then started firing people to try to you know keep yeah. the bottom line where it was. Yeah. And so I think that there is money to be made in these things. You've got to figure out how to do it and how to be smart about it and not be so avaricious, yeah. right? I mean, how much money is enough money to do something that's a public trust? If, if the newspaper breaks even, is that good enough? Or does it have to make ridiculous profits? And that's what happened. Wall Street in the mid-'80s turned their eyes to publishing and went, ooh, there's money to be had. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I'm, I'm not an anti-capitalist person, but this is what happens when you get to sort of late-stage capitalism and people are, you know, never enough, never enough, and you're trying to, you know, pull all the meat off of the bones. I think we're going to have, and I think we've seen this, right? This is what happened, is every city before the Internet had a columnist, Right. This is the local columnist, and this was the and every every newspaper had that. Well, when the internet came along and everybody could read Maureen Dowd, I was like, well, I don't need the fourth rate Maureen Dowd. I could just read Maureen Dowd. So that, 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 to me, that makes sense. You know, the, the 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 cream rises, and people could all get the best stuff. But what happens on the local thing? Yeah. That's the thing, and I think uh, they haven't figured it out. We've seen many many attempts. Uh, to some of them at, uh, I mean, there was some yeah, tests patch. At, at Patch at yeah. AOL. Yeah, and, and HuffPost was doing local while, stuff. Right? Yeah, we started doing our local city things. And I think it was effective from a um, creative standpoint and from a journalistic standpoint. Financially, it, it gets tougher, yeah. you know. And so I think, though, people are getting more and more used to paying you know, for content, uh, Netflix, and, you know, we're not just watching stuff for free. We're not just reading stuff for free. Roy, it's been great having you on the show. I encourage all of our listeners to go check out the book. We'll have a link and all the information in the show notes. Come back anytime. Ah, listen, you know, I I love the Webby's. As you once told me, you can always come on us. Oh, look at you. (laughs) Look at you. You're remembering one of my five-word Webby speeches. Yeah, yeah.
This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. It'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms.